0: So we're back in, the, uh, back in the gospel of John again today, and our story today actually starts with a bit of a mystery, a mystery that's kind of a holdover from last week's story, and the mystery is this. How did Jesus get to the other side of the lake? When I was uh, showing this to Shauna yesterday, I realized that kind of sounds like something you'd read on a popsicle stick, right? <laughs> and then on the other side would have some kind of Youth group joke about how we got there, but no, this is actually the driving question of our our narrative this morning. How did Jesus get to the other side of our lake uh, of, of the lake? So, kind of to recap from from earlier in John chapter six, Jesus has just finished feeding the five thousand. It was that remarkable uh, miracle where there were, you know five thousand people, five thousand men plus women and children scattered out on the hills, and Jesus multiplied miraculously. Five little loaves of bread, two, two little fish, and everybody got fed. Everyone got stuffed. There was, there was leftovers to overflowing. It's amazing. The crowd is stunned. They want to make Jesus king uh, right there on the spot. Just have him, you know, ride into Jerusalem, kick out the Romans, all of that. Jesus doesn't want to do it. He knows that there's actually a cross waiting for him before he gets the crown of, of the kingdom and all of that. So he actually dismisses the crowd, as Mark puts it, kind of almost forces them Uh, to to, to leave him alone, and then he withdraws into the mountains to pray by himself. That last part is very, very important, that he is all alone. He does not bring his disciples with him. In fact, uh, before he goes up into the hills to to pray by himself, he makes his disciples leave too. He he puts puts them all in a boat and, and says, hey, go over to the other side of the lake. I'll meet you there, and off they go in the boat. The crowd sees all this happen, okay? These basic facts are not in question. They must be well-established. In fact, this is how um, John actually starts our passage today. Verse 22, he re-emphasizes this critical fact. On the next day, so that would be the morning immediately after Jesus had had fed the 5,000, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one, count them, one boat, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. So they saw all this. So the crowd knows if Jesus is going to get to the other side of the lake, where, you know, where the town is, where the, where, the, uh, where the disciples had headed, he's going to have to go by a different boat, right? Or, or walk around the long way, which is going to take days which actually the crowd decides the next morning they're going to get in boats. Verse 23, other boats from Tiberias, which is there on the, um, the other side of the lake there, they came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Now this would be kind of in the wilderness near Bethsaida there uh, on the northeast side of the lake. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, they wake up in the morning they're like, oh, he's not here, neither are his disciples. They themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum on the other side there, Seeking Jesus, probably really, you know, seeking his disciples, at least, to, to ask them, hey, what, where, where do you think we're going to find Jesus again? We know he sent you away in the boat, but where, where is he? But to the crowd's great surprise, when they enter Capernaum and, uh, you know, look around for a little while, enter the synagogue, there's Jesus right there. He's teaching. How on earth did he get there? Verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Can you kind of hear the, hear the surprise in their voice? Or, or, or the shock? It's a mystery. Now this is a picture right here of actually the ruins of a synagogue um, from around this time period. It's from a different different part of Israel, but this gives you a, a sense of the sort of Um, Space where all this happened. Because Jesus was in a synagogue where this whole scene of our story today takes place. We read that actually down in verse 59. It's weird the way these ancient narratives work. It's like we hear the whole story and then right at the end of verse 59 it says, Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. So that's where this all takes place if you're trying to picture it. You can picture them kind of, you know, Uh, crowded into this little space. It's a far cry from the open hills where he just fed the 5,000. Now you've still got this crowd, presumably not 5,000. That would be a tight squeeze. But, you know, representatives of this crowd all jammed into this synagogue. And again, the big thing that is on this crowd's mind, at least initially, is this question right here. How did Jesus get to the other side of the lake? So as many of you probably picked up on, as I've just been talking about this, there's some pretty major irony in this question right here, at least for John's readers, because we, as people who've been reading the gospel of John, uh, this mystery is not a mystery. We know how Jesus got to the other, lake, the other side of the lake. John just described it in great detail in the story right before this, and that's he walked on it. Right? In, in, the middle, in the middle of the night, in the middle of this this storm where his disciples are just rowing and rowing and rowing, Jesus just comes, you know, strolling out there across the waves, gets in the boat with the disciples in the middle of the lake, and boom, next thing you know, they're in Capernaum. It's, it, it's amazing. Now, the crowd doesn't know that this happened, and as far as we know, they never really find out that this happened because Jesus doesn't tell them. That's part of the irony of all of this. Really, the biggest element of irony in this scene that you're going to see throughout... All the verses we look at today is that Jesus never gives this crowd what they're looking for. He never does. Instead, time and again in this exchange, question after question after question, he does not give them what they ask for. Instead, he gives them something better. Always. The crowd's going to ask Jesus three questions in in the verses that we're looking at today. Three questions plus one demand, really. And in each case, Jesus just catches them completely off guard with his replies. You can see like the shock on their face that they had when they saw him in the synagogue just getting more and more so with, with every answer that he gives them. It's kind of becoming a theme in the Gospel of John at this point. You know, whenever we have these parts where kind of the action in the story pauses and an individual or group of people has a conversation with Jesus, they just are baffled, puzzled, amazed, shocked. Like think of Nicodemus at night, back in chapter 3, right? The questions he asked, the responses he got from Jesus. Think of the woman at the well. The questions she asked, the responses she got from Jesus. Think of the disciples. You know, at the, at the, at the very start of the story, when, they, when, when he's calling them to follow him. It's just like, John is making this point that, you know, you come to Jesus with your questions, your agenda. Odds are he is going to turn the tables on you. He won't give you what you ask for necessarily. He'll offer you something better. And that is the point of narrative tension in our story. This is where the drama really comes from. As we're reading it, the questions that's in our mind as readers is, will the crowd have open hands... To receive what Jesus offers? Would you? This is where it gets pretty personal. You know, there's um, an ancient Christian quote that I've run across several places. It's usually attributed um, to St. Augustine, Uh, but it's debatable actually uh, whether he actually said this. Um, you know, it's attributed to him, but nobody usually puts down like a page number or anything. So I'm always a little suspicious of that. But really, uh, this, this quote, I think, sums up uh, well the main point of this passage. It also really encapsulates the irony that we see throughout this entire scene. And the quote is this. God is always trying to give us good things, but our hands are too full to receive them. God is always trying to give us good things, but our hands are too full to receive them. That's what we see in this story today. And and a lot like this crowd in the synagogue, we didn't come into church today with open hands, necessarily. You know, symbolically speaking, we're all holding on to stuff. Every single one of us. Stuff that we think is going to make us happy. Stuff that we think, you know, I, I really need this in order to have a meaningful life. Stuff that we think is essential to our purpose or uh, even our identity. Stuff that, that, that is at the core of us. So how would you respond if Jesus asked you to let go of those things and instead receive something better would you have the open hands to receive it this is this is really the drama in our story this is the tension in this passage for them and for us so let's see how it plays out we're going to start in verse 25 again when they that would be the crowd again saw him found him on the other side of the sea again just you know sitting there teaching in this synagogue like everything is normal they said to him rabbi teacher When did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. That would be the ones he had just multiplied. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures, to eternal life which the son of man will give to you for on him god the father has set his seal so the key contrast in this first exchange between jesus and the crowd is that contrast between food that perishes and food that endures that Food that perishes, again, it's first and foremost a call back to the, to the food that he just multiplied, uh, it, you know, the, the previous day that they all ate. That You know, this is why the crowd is so into Jesus right now. It's because he gave them a free meal. As Jesus puts it, he kind of calls them out on their mixed motives here right from the get-go. You're seeking me because you ate your fill of the loaves. This is why they're coming to him. And it's kind of it's understandable, right? I mean, this was an extraordinary miracle. It was also uh, very satisfying for this crowd. To get a free meal. The problem is that this crowd sees that miracle as, as, as nothing more than a free meal, nothing more than just kind of a, a way for them to get a full belly. Not because you saw, oops, go back here, I'm still on that. Not because you saw signs, is what Jesus says. Meaning, you missed the point of this. You missed the symbolic value. Yes, you saw the miracle. Yes, you, you know, you ate all this bread. That was great, but you didn't see the significance of it. The, the, the deeper truth that this miracle is trying to point to. Because Jesus, you know, he doesn't just do miracles for the sake of doing miracles. Or kind of like some cool uh, parlor trick. You know, like, hey, check this out. Look what I can do with bread. This is extraordinary. Everybody, try some. I can walk on water. Isn't this amazing? That's that is not why Jesus does these. John makes it very clear throughout this entire gospel that these miracles are signs, almost with a capital S, because John just designates seven of these as, as signs. They are you know, intended to serve as symbols you know, or as signposts to even greater truths and, and greater wonders than just what's happening with the bread or whatever. It's to point to the, the wondrous truth of Jesus' identity, Jesus' mission, who, who Jesus is. That, that's really what these are about, and that is what the crowd is totally and completely missing. They do not want to know Jesus. They want food, and Jesus calls them out on it. Do not work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life. Really, in a sense, Jesus is forcing this crowd to ask a question, and I think that it's, that, that it's one that every single one of us would do well to ask ourselves every single day, What are you striving for? What are you striving for? How many of us here today, I mean, we are worn out, tired and exhausted. (laughs) Sunday sometimes feels like Monday morning, if if you know what I mean. Because it's it's all week we've been been hustling. You know, we've just been going and going and going. For for what? What what is driving our work? What's driving our stress? What's driving all of our, our labor day after day? What are we really striving for? Will it really matter in the age to come? It's the question Jesus is posing here. I guess you could say it's a question of motives, right? Which is exactly what Jesus is trying to expose from the crowd that's coming to him right here. You come because you want food. You come because you want me to be, you know, your meal ticket. Because you want me to keep multiplying your bread and and keep feeding your bellies so that you don't have to be reliant on the Romans and their, their massive grain ships from Egypt that keep your whole country on a leash. You know, if you have unlimited food, you, you, in a sense, have autonomy. That's what they're thinking here. This is why they want to make Jesus king right after this. But this is entirely the wrong motive. Do not labor for food that perishes, Jesus says, meaning stuff that, that, that won't last. But instead, for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man, Jesus, will give to you as a gift. I mean, that's, that's, that's a big contrast right there. Not labor. You know, they, they want to labor for all this other food. No, J- Jesus wants to give you this food as, as a gift of, of, of grace, the stuff that really matters. And what we're going to see as we go through this is that this food is nothing less than Jesus himself. That's really where Jesus ends up with all this. He's going to call himself the bread of life in this extraordinary statement. And that's what this miracle was really support, supposed to point to. Not, you know, the bread that you ate, but the, 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 the bread with a capital B. Jesus, the, the, the real bread of life that all this is supposed to point to. That's why, again, he adds that part at the end of, about God the Father setting his seal. Not on the bread. God doesn't set his seal on the sign or the product of the sign, but on him certifying Jesus as the one who is worthy, saying Jesus, it's like God the Father endorsing, hey, do you guys wonder what you should seek? Do you guys wonder what you, should, what you should labor for and strive for and spend all your time pursuing? Boom, my seal's on Jesus. That's who you need to pursue. Nothing else will matter compared to him. Everything else will perish. More on that later. But, but the point is this, knowing Jesus, seeking him, just feeding on him and his teachings, this is the only goal worth pursuing. Every other goal, every other ambition or, or achievement or anything that, that like, we would call success, it is nothing but rot and, and waste compared to the ultimate treasure of knowing him. He's the pearl of great price, which is worth selling everything for. He's the treasure in a field that, that when you find it, you give up all that you have and you buy that field because he's worth it. He's the treasure. So again, what are you striving for? That's the question. Another way to think about it, this question right here, kind of pushing it forward. Do you think about next week? What would it take for you at the end of next week to say, this week was a success? What would have to happen? What would you have to achieve if, you know, it's next Sunday morning and you're thinking about, you know, the last week? Was it a success? What would have had to happen for you? What are your goals, your hopes? Think about it for the next year, for here in 2021. What would it have taken for 2020 to have been a success, to have been a good year? Would it be racking up a list of achievements, getting more stuff, promotion at work, better relationship? Or is it something more, something that would truly last? I remember um, hearing a sermon from uh, John Piper like 15 years ago that really changed my perspective on a lot of this. Some of you have probably uh, heard it as well. I know Bruce has shared it here before uh, in the past, but I think it's, it's worth sharing again. So I'm, I'm going to read um, what John Piper said. Here's what he said. Three weeks ago, we got word at our church that Ruby Eliason and Laura Edwards had both been killed in Cameroon. These were two women who uh, went to John Piper's church. Ruby was over 80 when she died. Single all her life, she poured it out for one great thing, to make Jesus known among the unreached, the poor, and the sick. Laura was a widow, a medical doctor pushing 80 years old and serving at Ruby's side in Cameroon. The brakes give way on their vehicle, over the cliff they go, and they're gone, killed instantly. And I asked the people in my church, was that a tragedy? Two lives driven by one great vision spent in unheralded service to the perishing poor for the glory of Jesus Christ. Two decades after almost all their American counterparts have retired to throw their lives away on trifles in Florida or New Mexico. No, that is not a tragedy. That is a glory. I'll tell you what a tragedy is. I'll read to you from Reader's Digest what a tragedy is. And then he pulls out this, you know, torn out page from Reader's Digest and reads it. He says, Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler playing softball and collecting shells. And he puts the paper down and he says, that's a tragedy. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. Don't buy it, he says. With all my heart, I plead with you, don't buy that dream. The American dream, a nice house, a nice car, a nice job, a nice family, a nice retirement. Collecting shells as the last chapter before you stand before the creator of the universe to give an account for what you did and say, here it is, Lord, my shell collection. And I've got a nice swing. And look at my boat. Don't waste your life, he says. Don't waste it, end quote. Really an expansion of what Jesus said right here 2,000 years earlier. Don't work for food that perishes. Because he is offering something far, far better for you. Eternal food, eternal purpose. Stuff that you can do right now that will last into eternity. Real value in the pursuit of Jesus and His work. Will you have open hands to receive that? Or will you keep clinging to the things that will perish? That's the tension here. And really... The next question that that the crowd asks leads logically out of this. Okay, so if you want us to do your work, Jesus, the work of God, the work that really matters, not pursue the stuff that perishes, then what is it? Verse 28, then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the work of God? What what is it that that, that God requires of us then? And Jesus' answer to this question is utterly shocking. It's utterly beautiful. It is something far far better than what i think the crowd was asking for here verse 29 jesus answered them this is the work of god that you believe in him whom he has sent i love that verse it's it's very likely that many of you here today are carrying a burden A burden that maybe you don't even think about consciously most of the time. But nevertheless, you are caring. And nevertheless, it does drag you down. And that is the burden of feeling like you are a disappointment to God. Have you ever felt that way? Maybe God's disappointed in you. Maybe when He looks at you, it's kind of a sad look in His eyes or maybe a sigh. Do you feel that way right now, maybe? And it's understandable. I mean, when we look at ourselves honestly, we, we know how we live day after, day after day. We know how we fall short. We know how we sin. We know how we don't do the good things that, that, that we ought to do. And, you know, while we as Christians might acknowledge that, yeah, you know, I, I believe I'm not going to hell for this, you know, Jesus has that taken care of, we still carry this nagging sense that to God, we're largely a disappointment. Someone he'll tolerate, but not someone in whom he delights. That he requires more of us. That he requires much, much more than whatever we've been able to give so far. Have you felt that way? Jesus wants you to get rid of that burden. Seriously, he wants you to to just drop it. To throw it away and come to him with open hands because he has something far, far better to give you. Look at the key contrast in, the, in the, these verses right here. It is the contrast between works versus work. Works versus work. You see how the crowd asks the question right there? They ask the question in the plural. They say, What are the works that we must do to be doing the work of God? Like they're expecting Jesus to give them a list. Yes, you know, he'll say, uh, Keep the Sabbath. Go to the temple, make your sacrifices, eat kosher, love your neighbor, and if you do these things well enough and for long enough, then God will be pleased with you. That's, that is what it is, is meant by works, plural. It's, been, it's, a, it's a list, a, the list of stuff we got to do if we're going to keep God happy with us, God's requirements. And the reason that so many of us, even as Christians, carry this burden of feeling like a disappointment to God is because almost all of us keep a running list like this in our minds. You know, have I read my Bible this week? How much? Did I swear this week? To who? (laughs) How much? Did I avoid lust and anger and jealousy or at least do better than last week? Uh, Did I give money to the poor? Did Did I get up early to pray? How am I doing on those things compared to the other people I know? Am I about average? Am I above average? Am I below average? And then we use all of this stuff in the list in our mind to assess that bigger question, is God disappointed with me? Well, if you are a Christian, you need to tear up that list. Seriously. That, that, that is the clear call of Jesus right here in this passage because that is a list of works. Plural. And that list will never earn you favor with God. That list is never going to make God happy with you. That, that, that list will do nothing but condemn you and, and be a burden on your back until the day that you die. That list is not the way of Jesus. That, because the way of Jesus is not the way of works, plural, but right here it is the way of work. Work, singular. The only work that God requires, right there in verse 29, believe in him whom he has sent. That's it. Jesus could have given a, a list of do's and don'ts right here. Easily. But he doesn't. He gives a singular command. Believe in Jesus, the one who does the work for you. It's, it's an anti-work. Really, that's, that's what belief is. Belief means to stop trusting in yourself and to start trusting in Jesus. In, instead, it means to stop you know, trying to clean up yourself. And instead, just come to Jesus and let him wash you. It means to stop trying to, to justify yourself in the eyes of God or in the eyes of, of God that, uh, or in the eyes of other people, and instead, come to Jesus with empty hands and let him justify you. It means to completely and forever stop measuring yourself by the list of your works and instead recognize and celebrate the fact that Jesus took that list and he nailed it to the cross where it will never, ever be heard from again. What does it take to please God? That's the question that you need to ask yourself when your heart condemns you, when you're carrying that burden. Wait, what does does it take to please God? What does it take to make him happy with me? According to Jesus, it's one thing and one thing only, and that is belief. Empty-handed, desperate, coming to him with nothing at all but empty hands, faith. You come to Jesus like that, God is delighted with you. Do you believe this? I mean I it's hard. This this is this is right at the, the heart of the Christian life I think and of our sanctification. Because you know what that list does you would think oh if uh, teaching like this this is going to lead to just greater license. If I really believed this oh man I'm just going to go sin like crazy. It's the opposite. That list is what leads to bondage to sin because you'll never be able to keep it. It's the grace of God that leads to freedom. Holiness, sanctification, and joy. Do you believe this? I mean, everything in our heart screams against this truth right here. Every lie of our mind and of the devil tells us that, you know, you deserve condemnation, that God's disappointed, He could never love, never accept us. But with the utmost clarity and the utmost gospel power, the New Testament writers just hammer this home over and over and over and over again because we need it. Ephesians 2 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved. Through faith. And this is not of your own doing. Not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, plural. Tear up the list. That's what Paul is saying. The words of Scripture say this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, by faith, not by ourselves, not by our efforts, not by our ongoing holiness, we have, present tense, peace with God through our Savior, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Tear up the list. The words of Scripture say this, Romans 3.28, For we maintain that one is justified by faith, apart from works of the law, apart from works, apart from them, separate from them. They're different categories from your justification. Tear up the list. It's not going to help you at all to be justified in God's sight. Tear it up. Don't trust your heart on this one. Trust the words of Jesus where he says right here, This is the work singular of God that you believe on him whom he has sent. If you have come to Jesus in faith, just know this, that when God looks at you, he is not disappointed ever. He's delighted because when he looks at you from now on until the day you are completely glorified and all sin is completely removed from your life completely forever, from from now on to when he looks at you till then, he looks at you with nothing but delight because he sees the glory and the goodness and the holiness of his Son transferred to you by faith. That's the, that's the beauty of the Gospel. See the invitation right here. Will you come to Jesus with open hands to receive that gift, or will you keep holding on to your list? That's the tension in this story. Next question, verse 30. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What what work do you perform? Our fathers, meaning their uh, Israelite ancestors, ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. So many of you probably remember the background of this from our series that we did in, in, in Exodus just last year here, how God you know, miraculously rained down this, this bread from heaven on the people of Israel day after day for for 40 years while they wandered in the wilderness. And apparently, based on a lot of the writings of uh, Jewish contemporary people from this time, there was this common expectation among Jews who were waiting for God's Messiah that when God's Messiah finally did arrive, that he would do this again. That just like Moses, he would call down manna from heaven and feed uh, the nation of Israel as he worked for their liberation as a nation. So they're asking Jesus, hey, do something along these lines. Give us manna. And then we'll know that you are right up there with Moses, right? Then we'll believe in you. Just like we said, you know, just like you told us to do in the previous verse. You said, believe on him who sent. Well, this is what it's going to take for us to believe in you. You've got to start giving us some manna. The problem is, uh, just like it's been happening all along in this conversation, the crowd is completely missing the point. Verse 32. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives, present tense, you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So notice, first of all, he corrects their assumption about uh, the source of the manna, right? They were thinking, hey, this is Moses who gave us the manna. No. It was God himself, Jesus said, using Moses as his conduit, his messenger. Then second, he corrects their misunderstanding about the the nature of the bread from heaven. It's not bread anymore, according to Jesus, like he hinted at earlier, like he's just about to say explicitly, this bread, the new manna, the better manna, is not food, it's a person. Then the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He who comes down from heaven. Now, I kind of give the crowd a little bit of a pass for being confused on this particular one here, because the Greek, uh, in the way Jesus says this, is a little bit ambiguous. That that pronoun that right there is translated as "He who comes down from heaven" could also be heard as "That which," as a, like an impersonal pronoun. So they would hear they, you know if they were expecting him to call down manna, they would have heard heard this that the uh, the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world, not he who. So again, just confirming that expectation they had, which is why then verse 34 makes a lot of sense, why they respond with their first kind of non-question in this exchange. Really, that's a demand. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Like, okay, yeah, we're, we're on board with you. Okay, it's not really from Moses. It's from God. That's fine. Just make the manna happen again. Let's, let's wake up to a breadstorm every morning that we can just gather up and and finally be free from our dependence on this bread-based economy we're all in. But in a beautiful demonstration of his patience and uh, and his grace, you know, Jesus does not respond here in frustration or anger, as he very well could have. He also does not give the people what they ask for. Instead, in in, uh, what is the climax of our passage today, in the heat of this exchange with this... um, crowd in this, you know, stuffy synagogue. Jesus makes one of the most beautiful invitations that anyone could ever hear. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Once again, Jesus is setting a clear contrast before them, a a, a dichotomy. There was what the crowd asked for, manna. And then on the other side, you have what Jesus is offering to them, himself. This is the first of seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. You see, John has some very cool structural organization to it. There are seven signs, kind of with a capital S, that Jesus does, where you know John says this is the sign that Jesus performed. There are also seven I am statements, seven times where Jesus utters that very theologically loaded phrase, I am, which again, an echo of Exodus when God himself said this at the burning bush and then uses some sort of metaphor. I am the bread of life, he says here. I am the door, he'll say later on. I am the good shepherd. I am the vine. He does this seven times. And each one of these times, he's he's using these metaphors to explain something really profound and powerful with a lot of depth about who he is and why he came, his identity and his mission. And right here, what Jesus is saying in the first of these I am statements is that fundamentally, Jesus came to bring life, life to the full that's what bread of life means right here. There's kind of two ways you could understand that of life section of this. One way is describing it, at, uh, uh, the quality of this bread, that it's 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 living bread. It's not dead. It's not going to rot. It's, it's, it's living because Jesus is living. He's, he's flesh and blood. One of his essential characteristics uh, is life. You know, we read in the prologue of John, John says, in him was life, meaning this is just who Jesus is. He's overflowing with life. And part of his mission is he overflows that life to other people. We see this powerfully in his resurrection from the dead and in his ultimate promise to resurrect all of his followers from the dead as well. This is part of it. He is the living bread. But Jesus is also this this bread that sustains life, is uh, the bringer of life. Not just living bread, but bread that, that brings this to others. I think really that is getting to the core of, of what this metaphor means right here. Because just like bread and and food are basic to sustaining biological life for uh, every creature on this planet, so Jesus is just basic and essential to this life that he's been talking about all along in the Gospel of John, this this eternal life that, that, that he keeps promising people, this life of the age to come. Jesus is how we get that life. Jesus is how that life is initiated. He is how it is sustained. It's through him, through him alone. He is the bread of life that we long for. So, there's a clear invitation here. Come to Jesus and find the life that you are looking for. That's it. That's what he's telling this crowd right here. You know, one of the things that you can observe in um, really both Scripture and personal experience, I think, you see this truth illustrated in a lot of places outside of the Bible. I could give examples here. I'm not going to, but it's the truth that all people are born with a deep hunger in their, in their souls, a deep thirst for something. All people are, are born with these, like, soul-level yearnings at, at the core of who they are, these longings to be known, these longings to be loved, these um, longing for relationships that actually mean something, relationships that will last and not break, like so many of the relationships we partake in. Longing for, for purpose, for a, for a life that matters, for, for doing something that's actually going to last. And, and in various ways, every single human being spends their life striving to find satisfaction for these deep hungers of the soul, that, you know, some sort of relief for that collective thirst of their heart. We see this all around us, the signs of it. I mean, this is what you see if you scroll through Instagram, right? You see hungry people who are looking for something. This is what you see really in your office, the people filling the cubicles around you. They're, they're hungry people. They're looking for something. This is what you see at political rallies. This is what you see at the gym. This is what you see at the other parents at your kids' you know, soccer practice or whatever. They're, every, they're all hungry people. They're all looking for something, looking and searching and striving, but for what? Do they know? I mean, what, what are you really hungry for? Often we don't pause and ask this question enough. I mean, the people who ask this question are the advertisers. You'll see this. If you watch the Super Bowl today, look at the Super Bowl ads. They're all trying to meet some sort of hunger. They're all offering something to satisfy these longings and key in on that to get us to buy stuff. And I do. I buy a lot of stuff. It doesn't satisfy my hunger. (laughs) Sometimes it does if it's like a cheeseburger, but like the metaphorical hunger. Where will you find that satisfaction for the thirst of your soul? Where will you? You know, I read this part here where Jesus says, come to me, those who are hungry and thirsty, and you'll never hunger or thirst again. I can't help but think of the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. You know, there is really no other book that I think describes the hunger of, of the human, quite, quite, human heart quite so powerfully as, as Ecclesiastes, so poetically, really. And it also describes the utter failure of anything in all of creation to satisfy that hunger the way that we need. Here's how the writer describes it in uh, kind of what I would call his failed quest for fulfillment in chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes. He says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. So that's what he's he's doing an experiment. He's like, I'm going to see what's what's worthy for people to do. I'm going to see what really will fill this void in my heart. I'm going to go on an experiment here. And he's got the means to do it. As you see, he says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forests of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. So he's a roaring success. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, so they can do kind of those cool duets we like sometimes, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great, and I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. You know, and if it concluded right there, you would think, okay, that wasn't too bad, right? That's kind of the life that I would want to live if I didn't have any restrictions. I would had all the money that I wanted and stuff. But he summarizes it in verse eleven. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil. That I expended in doing it, and behold, look, behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. That's it, vanity meaningless is, is how the niv translated literally that word means mist or vapor like if you had gone outside your house first thing this morning when it was really cold and went oh, and then you know your breath was there for a second and then it's just gone that's what this is it's vapor it's smoke all of that stuff that he thought would make him happy was insubstantial it was fleeting ultimately unsatisfying this right here is all that you will find in this world apart from jesus christ Smoke, vapor, that's it. Everything that we're striving for, everything that we think is going to make us happy that stresses us out so much and we don't get it, it's just smoke. No amount of money, no amount of sex or relationships, no amount of success or fame or achievement, popularity, anything else could give us one ounce of of, of meaningful, lasting satisfaction to the deepest hungers of our souls. This is the truth of Scripture. It goes against every lie we hear all around us, but this is the truth of Scripture. So if you're not someone who has decided to follow Jesus, if that's something you've never done before, you've never resolved in your heart that, hey, you know what, I'm done with the way that I've been walking my life. I'm going to walk the way that Jesus walked. I'm, I'm done trusting in myself for satisfaction or for forgiveness or for any of that. I'm, I'm just going to trust in Jesus instead. If you've never done that, this is a clear invitation right here. John six thirty-five: come to Jesus and find life. He's saying it. He's saying, come, come to me. This, I, you can't get more of a clear invitation than that. The door is wide open and Jesus is asking you to hook yourself up to him. Be united to him. Try his way of life and find that his yoke is easy, his burden is light. And find satisfaction for your soul. It's not an easy life. That's something Jesus makes very clear. He's not going to give you all the stuff listed in Ecclesiastes 2. All the success, the popularity, the sex, all the the life you want. No, he's going to give you something better than what you're asking for right now. His way is always the best way. So come to him if you never have. And then for all of us who are Christians, who have made that commitment, who said, you know what we are going to do, We're, we're, we're walking with Jesus. He says, come follow me, we're going to follow him. For those of us who have accepted the, qu- the invitation, the question is this. Do we live as if we really believe this? Our day-to-day choices. If, if we were to look at you know, our credit card statement from last month, do, does, does the way we spend our money emphasize this priority above all else? Or are we still somehow trying to supplement our joy with things that won't matter? Do we think, yeah, Jesus kind of gives us kind of a baseline, some good stuff for our souls, but he's not our full satisfaction. He's not the the truest treasure. He's not worth giving up our lives entirely for like those two old ladies did in John Piper's story. No, we got to hold on to something, right? Hedge our bets a little bit. Do we live live as if this is really true? Some stuff, some questions you could use to kind of evaluate where your heart is on this. Think of the things that made you anxious last week. Think of the things that maybe kept you up a little bit at night or that you were worrying about. How much of that was related to your pursuit of Jesus above all else? And how much of that stress, that anxiety, was related to your pursuit of other things to supplement Him, maybe supplant Him in our hearts? Another question. Think about the things that made you angry or frustrated. How much of that was related to your pursuit of things that ultimately don't last, that ultimately will not satisfy you, that are vapor, that are smoke? Same question could be asked almost about any of these kind of sinful struggles of the heart that we deal with on a day-to-day basis, like jealousy. How much of that is related to our pursuit of things that won't last and why we're envious of another person who has maybe the body that we want or the income that we want? What about boredom? How much is our, our apathy, our boredom with, with, with life related to thinking that the things that matter really don't matter and the things that don't matter really do matter? There's confusion on this. It leads to all sorts of problems. Do we really believe that Jesus is our source of ultimate satisfaction? You know, there's a direct contrast to this quote of Ecclesiastes that we as Christians, we need to, I mean, we need to remember this. We need to take hold of it. And it's a quote from the prophet of, the, the prophet Isaiah also in the Old Testament. And Isaiah is looking forward to the age of the Messiah, when the Messiah will come and what the Messiah will bring. And this this is the invitation that he gives. I love it. It's in Isaiah 55, verses 1 and 2. He says this, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, who's broke, come, buy. Buy. And eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligent to, d- diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. This is the invitation of Jesus. Come all who are thirsty, all who are hungry, all who are impoverished and, and broke and, and broken, come to me. Feast on the bread of life for free and let your soul find rest. Pray with me and then let's worship together. Father, there is really a just a, a tragic absurdity when we when we consider what you have given, what you have offered to us through your Son, Jesus Christ, and what we so often pursue instead. Forgive us, Father, for, for neglecting you, the spring of living water, and digging our own cisterns, dry cisterns, that will hold no water. Forgive us, Father, and thank you for your constant provision for us through Jesus Christ, for the, for the joy that we have of, of being united to him by your Spirit. For the security we have of being united to him in his righteousness. For the hope we have of being united with him in his glorification. You are so good to us, Father. We worship you now with full hearts. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen.